Hello, and welcome to the Beautiful Business Podcast. Beautiful Business is a community for leaders who believe there's a better way of doing business. We believe beautiful businesses are led with purpose by people who care, guided by a clear strategy, and soulfully grown. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Beautiful Business Podcast. My name is Ewan Sang, part of the Beautiful Business team. And this week, I was joined by Tim Evans. Tim, for the past 15 years, has been helping entrepreneurs build resilience and prosperous businesses, delivering compelling and creative content, products and services to market. He is the Investment Director, Creative UK Investments, overseeing all investment activity for the company, responsible for building and delivering investment strategies, including best practice, origination, due diligence, governance and monitoring, as well as formulating and building new fund propositions. Tim, let's talk a bit more about reasons to be positive. Let's explore how founders can unlock funding despite these economic challenges we're currently facing, or certainly those we might face further down the line. Let's start off with you telling us a bit about the work that you've done to help businesses raise funding. Well, we're not purely just an investor. And actually, you know, we talk about ourselves as being a strategic investment partner. What does that actually mean? Well, it means that we'll probably only invest in a business where we can add value beyond the cash, right? What that looks like is quite unique to the business. Every business, right, is different. It's got different challenges. It's got different capacities. It's got kind of different ambitions. So how we help businesses is very different. But one of the few areas that we're really active is in supporting our clients to raise finance. And we do that. That might be in in terms of co-investment. Now, we won't have an equity proposition live until October, but in our last equity fund, co-investing with rounds, but giving other non-sector specific investors the confidence to invest also by means of us being first in sector experts, investors who can give it. So that's one way but also then by the means of us being with one of our creative businesses now and actually them then looking to raise beyond our capacity, making introductions to investors. We've got a great network of investor partners, VCs, institutions who are really starting to get excited about the creative industries. How we make those introductions, sometimes just kind of formal kind of emails, we do something that internally we call a pitch and pint where our cohort who are currently raising kind of finance, we'll just get them around the room. We'll, we'll book a room out. We'll have a bit of lunch. We'll get some of our investor partners and we'll just in a very informal way, we'll just get them to do a 10 minute pitch. Those have been really successful over the years. We've also got our programmatic activity, things like the Creative Enterprise Program, which is part of with the UK Business Angels Association. Two pitching events of the year, UKBAA will bring and our last event a couple of months ago was attended by 78 high net worth investors to introduce them to new creative industry opportunities, but also profiling our clients, right? This, their successes, put them forward for awards, right? So they've got that visibility using our presence and our reach to actually, you know, promote them so that actually investors come to them. So it's ad hoc, it's unique, but we've got a whole host of kind of cards up our sleeve, really, in terms of how we support them to raise finance. I'll touch on one last point is also that, you know, quite often helping them being investor ready is really critical. 
Now, our investment process is one by which our investment managers, once they see a really good opportunity to invest, they will kind of champion them and help them develop their proposition to a strong proposition to get through our investment processes. Off the back of that, there is a whole host of areas where actually by which we can see they can improve in terms of their systems, their messaging and their processes. There's a feedback loop in terms of helping them improve on those items but then also we're always a sounding board for new investment decks where you know we've seen (laughs) thousands of investment propositions we know what's good we know what's bad and we know what's going to sell so we can often give some good advice in terms of that kind of investment thesis fab so you not only have invested in the previous equity funds that you have invested yourself but you've also brought on the co-investors as well so you almost have to sell your cohort in as well as them kind of selling themselves in terms of bringing in that external investment and additional co-investors yeah it's, it's not selling in i mean investors are there to invest that's what they want to do so they're just looking for the best opportunities now what you build up some kind of credit with certain investors who have invested in your portfolio or deals you've taken forward so they're more likely to listen to you as if you share a deck now, that's why it's really important for us that our clients are investor ready and that deck is strong because we don't want to lose that credit, right? We want to make sure they keep listening and give these propositions time of day. So investors want to invest. They often just don't have the reach. So they're really keen on partners like us who have an early stage portfolio to mine. Mm. And you mentioned investor readiness and you've kind of alluded to it a couple of times there. I've been lucky enough again to kind of be part of some of the programs that you've done before, earlier stage ones as well. And these programs are really comprehensive. They cover all sorts of stuff, everything from you know financial management, forecasting, sales, marketing, pitching, team building and, and team development and people strategy. But in your mind, what do you think are the three big things that business owners need to think about when they are preparing to raise finance or to raise capital? I think the first thing is having the right founder foundations, right? So people invest in people. They invest in teams. Now, no team is the full article right from the start. and No individual is the ideal kind of founder entrepreneur. However, from our experience, and I've made mistakes in the past in not investing in the wrong kind of mindset, is that there's certain characteristics of individuals have who are have a greater chance of success and i call it the founder foundations but that those items are under being willing to look at yourself take on advice having the presence to understand your limitations being willing to be honest with yourself and park your ego in terms of actually what you're doing right what you're doing wrong and understanding that actually it's not one person who builds. Understand that nothing good has ever been built in isolation. So understanding that actually the skill set of that individual is to build teams to deliver the foundations for growth. So that founder foundation is just, it's a growth mindset, I think some people call it. You know, that's the one thing. You need to nurture that within yourself. I don't think it comes naturally to everyone. I think, you know, it's something that many kind of find quite difficult. You know, gone are the days where these alpha male kind of leader kind of things have, you know, are seen as the kind of the go-to leader for running successful businesses. That's not the case. Leaders, leadership now, 
you know, really requires actually a degree of kind of to listen with, you know, listen twice and speak once, you know, and it does require a lot of introspection. So what I would say is an investor needs to know that you are willing to grow, that you are mindful of your ability and you present to them that capacity for growth. I would then say in terms of a business and a product, really important to have that product, which it does have a clear differentiator. What does your product do that Jane Next Door's product doesn't do, right? What is the barrier to entry for your product, your service, right? So why would I invest in you when actually Jane Next Door can equally look at your product and say, well, God, that's a great idea. I can very quickly drop a bit of code in there and my product can do the same. So really understand what's the kind of differentiate, what's that barrier to entry that's going to stop someone else doing it. And then I would say, as a product, how is it really changing people's lives? Because what we're now finding, right, in economic uncertainty, that we're all starting to cut costs at home because cost of electric is going through the roof. And actually, the things that are really important to us is making sure that our kids eat really healthily. And then, but does that mean we keep hold of the Sky Sports? Well, for me, it does. But it probably might mean that actually some of those kind of other short, smaller services that are nice to have are cut, really. So, from my perspective, what I really like to look at is things that aren't nice to have, but are actually essential and would be essential when it comes to a kind of a cost cutting kind of exercise. So, you know, does it have a real meaningful impact on the buyer's life? I just want to take a quick minute to say thanks to our trusted partners, Crystal Hosting. Crystal is a B Corp powered by 100% renewable energy and has a goal of planting 1 billion trees by 2030. Crystal service is super fast and super reliable, and they're genuinely really nice people. We're super picky over who we work with as partners at Beautiful Business, and we're delighted to count Crystal as one of them. Back to the podcast. That's fab. That's such solid advice. So to reflect on that, that's like, number one, your ability as a founder to take on feedback, to grow and develop. I love that terminology, your capacity to grow and to develop. Because at the end of the day, as you say, investors invest in people. It's a people thing. And it's, got, and it's interesting that you put that as your number one. And then we move on to the product, the product being defendable, being, you know, having those kind of barriers to entry. And then our third part about the value that your product or your service provides to your customer and it not being a, a nice to have, but being essential, being unessential. And it, just to pick up your point there about, I think yeah, you're right. I think that, you know, the days of having this macho, you know, I work 21 hours a day, I don't need to sleep, I get up at four in the morning, go for my half marathon, come back, you know, eat a whole bowl of spinach and 10 eggs, and yeah. you know, and then read eight books before I even stop. It sounds crazy when you think of it like that, and you think how unfashionable it is, or you know how outdated that sounds. But I feel like the founders often still feel quite feel like they almost like they have to, they almost feel like they have to be, you know, working really hard and not so much working very hard, but kind of almost kind of showing to investors, look how many hours I work, look mm. how, not only that, but also that belief in themselves and in their product and in their, you know, value proposition. Mm. It's almost like there needs to be a enough of it to drive <laughs> things forward, but I suppose what you're talking about is enough awareness and enough humility to be able to change if needed. Is that kind of where it is? Well, let's flip it a bit. If I'm an investor and I've invested in this individual in this business and in their business plan to grow a an effective and successful team, 
And this individual has come to me and he's saying, I'm working, you know, and he's giving me the impression that he's flat out, 100 miles an hour, doing this, that, and the other. Then I'm thinking to myself, this is a risk. This person's got a complete risk of burnout. What's happening to my investment then? Also, is he an effective manager if he's doing all this delivery work, right? Who's doing the thinking? Where's his capacity? Where's his time for thinking? And actually, it's a grown scaling business, right? You know, we've got this ambition, but the what next is still kind of slightly opaque, right? <laughs> you know, so he's thinking about the now. What about the next and the later if he's just focused on delivery? So I'm not sure actually that washes in terms of the expectation of the investor. Hard work is expected, absolutely. But I suppose what I was trying to drive at originally was the importance of heart nurturing a really effective culture of, of course, hard work, but of one where actually a culture where people want to stay, work, where talent will be attracted to you rather than you having to attract talent. The macho alpha male point I was trying to make was around those kind of, you know, not necessarily your Robert Green kind of attitudes, but, you know, one where actually people feeling included in the decision-making process, where their expertise is valued, where they are given the autonomy to really own their area of work, right? And not one where there is a single individual who considers it their business, not our business, their goal, not our goal, their right to make the decision and not ours. So it's about working culture and a healthy working culture and a healthy working culture will make a successful business because you'll attract the best talent, you'll retain the best talent, your customers expect a healthy kind of affects your brand, your customers expect a healthy brand from you, right? Because if you're not doing it, your competitor is. So it's sustainability as well. 100%. A term that I came across years ago was that within your teams, if you're lucky enough to have a team, is there'll always be a little pot of discretionary productivity, you know, a little bit where people will can dig that bit deeper for you, but it is fully discretionary. It's up to them to do it. And it's like, how well can you tap into, you know, that pot of discretionary productivity? And I think everything you said just there is completely right. I just want to touch back onto what you said before. Sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. You no, go for it, I, I think you've smashed something there. And actually, that's something just to kind of, that we're looking within our own investment company, in our own investment team. And it's that discretionary productivity. Like, yeah. That comes with a kind of a leadership attitude, doesn't it? Where you give people the ability to be leaders and the ability and the autonomy to kind of go and do that delving and that stuff sometimes unlocks some really kind of magical stuff you know but you've got to nurture that leadership attitude and you've got to nurture that culture right 100 so back to your point earlier you talked about having seen lots of pitches and we've just spoken about having a defendable product with a uniqueness that is genuinely unique and also being a must-have your product service being a must-have so you'd have seen many pitches and lots of pitch decks over the years. What advice would you give to businesses when it comes to actually showing their competitive edge, this you know, this uniqueness that you mentioned before? I mean, I don't think I'm going to answer the question for you, actually. But in terms of showing, I just think what it's really important to provide proof, okay? Now, grand statements are, you know, littered throughout investment decks but where you can provide some proof within that what you are saying is true validates your product or your service then 
that is meaningful. That's what we look out for. Okay. And that might be people love our just a one person has licensed our product at this price. There's a proof point. You've got a proof point there. Okay. So we've got a customer. We're going to sell it at this. And that can validate so much in terms of your, your assumptions for your growth expectations. Right. We're different in the market. Okay. We've got a unique product. Show us. Put your kind of your put the landscape there on a paper and show us how you're different, right? Make sure it's accurate. Don't miss anyone because you're looking competent, right? But the point is about own it, do your research and provide validation, proof points, grand statements are, you know, all well and good to kind of attract the eye. But actually what will get you at a deck, an investment deck is about getting the second conversation, right? You won't get that second conversation unless you see some validation. That's really, really good. And just something I must ask, and I know it is a bit of a buzzword, but it's cropping up more and more in conversation. We're hearing it more and more in the news. But what do you see the impact of AI having in the world of raising capital? How are investors looking at this new technology? And what should business owners be thinking about here? That's a massive question. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. What's your kind of top line on this? Because I know when we spoke yeah. about it before, I suppose this comes back to that whole piece about how almost kind of like how defendable is your product or your service? You mentioned your example was, can somebody else just drop a bit of code in and replicate it? Yeah. But I suppose there are similar kind of considerations that kind of come through here from a value proposition perspective, mm-hmm. but also I imagine from a delivery perspective as well, how much could AI? Yeah, and it is a great question. And actually, you know, for companies out there, if you're not mindful of AI, that you're burying your head in the sand, right? You know, it is a bit of an unknown quantity, but, you know, there are things that it can't do. And there are things that you can do that it can't do. You know, emotions and consciousness are things that we are blessed with that AI can't. You know, it can't build long-standing relationships with clients. It can't build trust, right? It can't adapt independently. There are things that you and and disruptive thinking, you know, have in abundance that AI is not going to replace. So if I was, you know, addressing a question around AI, I would talk about the items, you know, within my repertoire, within my product that are drive to those unique items and which are not replicable. I would also be thinking about how AI is incorporated into my practice, how it does drive productivity. You know, there is a place for AI in most walks of life going forward, I expect. You know, what can it do for us and what it cannot do? You know, there are huge benefits in productivity for us as an investment company, right? We write reports, we do items like that. It can provide structure to those things to save us, you know, some time. But what it can't do is it can't analyze whether actually Ewan has those founder foundations and whether we believe that Ewan has that capacity to grow, right? It can't tell me whether, right, Tim, if shit hits fan, right, and we've got another pandemic and, you know, or cost of living keeps going up. It can't tell me whether I believe that Tim is going to cut my product from his kind of his weekly shopping basket. So there are intuitive items there that only my team and you know with their great experience can do. And it's important for businesses to really kind of be clear in terms of actually what they do that is people really value and what AI can do in terms of that automated piece. 
That's interesting. And I guess from that investor perspective, that, you know, AI is very much on the agenda. It's visible. But the fact that you're looking for those items that you mentioned, those non-replicable items, and I guess bringing that out in your stories and also looking at how you can apply AI in terms of your own operations, in terms of efficiencies, other sorts of things that you'd look out for in a potential company. And just to wrap up, I wanted to ask you this question because you mentioned this when we were briefing about this interview about managing your expectations as a founder and that there are some kind of home truths that you have to face up to when you're looking to raise. Do you want to just give us a few of these truth bombs, please, Tim? I think we've probably covered them, actually. I, I probably was, again, talking about those founder foundations, right? And yeah. the importance of kind of, you know, opening up your world to different opinions, you know? And so those truth bombs, you know, are around actually inviting people into your world who really provoke different ways of thinking, different attitudes. And that drives to diversity in terms of background, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic as well. You know, there's a great body of evidence now starting to materialize in terms of actually those businesses that have diversity at board level, how they perform in terms of the bottom line. It's not just a nice to have, right? It'll make you more profitable as a business, right? Because what they're doing is they've got kind of more, you know, they've got a deeper kind of treasure chest to kind of delve into. So as a founder, you know, surround yourself with some really provoking kind of people. Build a tribe around you of advisors who can really kind of test you, get you thinking, have the courage of your convictions once you've considered those. That's your responsibility. But, you know, surround yourself with some really interesting people. We've got a chap on our credit committee, and I hope he doesn't listen to this, but Dave Mackin, who's he's been incredibly valuable to how we've run the last fund because he's brought a, a different perspective to what the company has had before. And that has really, you know, pushed us to further kind of professionalize and best practice what we do. Has that been easy? No, it hasn't. You know, but I think this is the road to kind of success is actually by kind of just, you know, surrounding yourself with that activity and they will drop the truth bombs on you. You know, it's your responsibility then to kind of absorb that and find out how you're going to deal with it. But I think it just goes back to the founder foundations again. And that founder foundation with the right attitude will mean that actually you will grow a team of advisors around you and a tribe of not just advisors, sorry, it could be your peer group, right? We like to pull together our portfolio into a, just to have a lunch sometimes, right? They like to refer to it as just sharing war stories. But within that, they will just kind of, you'll get, you know, by building that tribe and how, you know, sharing those war stories, you'll get comfort on your decision making, right? And you'll kind of be a bit close to that 100% around it. So I would kind of say, just make sure that you're more than a community of one. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Beautiful Business Podcast. And a big thank you to Tim Evans from Creative UK. Thank you for joining us for this week's Beautiful Business Podcast. Beautiful Business is a community for leaders who believe there's a better way to do business. Join us next time for more interesting discussions on how businesses can bring about change, helping communities, building a fairer society and safeguarding the planet. You can also join in the discussion at www.beautifulbusiness.uk.